0: We're transitioning now into, uh, back into our uh, Advent series, which is uh, titled With, and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then I'm going to uh, pray for Pastor Matt as he, come because, as he comes to preach. Now, um, because it's such a long text, normally, I see a lot of new faces here, normally we stand up out, out of respect for the reading of God's word, but since it's 20 verses today, I'm going to give you guys a break, and you guys can remain seated. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray as Pastor Matt comes to preach this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Advent season um, as we celebrate um, Christ coming to earth to live and die in our place. And, uh, and so we want to remember that this Advent season. And then also not just remember how you came, but also remember how you're coming soon. And so in this uh, season, as we wait for Christmas, it reminds us also as we wait for your return. We look forward to that. And I pray, uh, Father, this morning um, that as we hear this sermon, that our hearts are filled with this theme of joy and, uh, and that we uh, are encouraged uh, to celebrate the season, but then also look forward to your return. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. Peace be with those as well who...
1: I would love to be here in Kent um, for various circumstances. Thank you for all of your serving and your giving and your praying in this season. Um, as we prepare uh, for Christmas in the upcoming weeks, I want to remind you this morning, if you haven't already uh, got the gist of it through our liturgy, um, and it was announced even in our passage that we read, but Christmas uh, is about the news of great joy. News of great joy, those are words we don't normally, we're not, we've been accustomed over a a while now, particularly the last last couple of years, words that we're not used to going together. It's funny, uh, those words, news of great joy. These days it can seem like news is meant to shock us, Uh, news is meant to terrify us, Um, news is meant to grip us in anxiety and keep us glued uh, for more news. That's just the nature of the world, and it's broken, and it's a compromised uh, state that it's in. Uh, but the news of Christmas, it is shocking, uh, but it, it, it's, it's the kind of shock that doesn't cause dread or anxiety. It's the kind of news that if you sit with it, you ponder it. Um, it, it does have this mysterious power to bring up an abiding, deep, sustaining, steadfast kind of joy in whatever position or state that you find yourself in this season. And we certainly hope that um, you get there this season. Um, It's more like uh, joyful wonder and anticipation. We should excitedly want to know what this means for us. I don't care if you're a brand new Christian or you've been Christian for years, the Christmas story I don't think we can ever or should ever get tired of it or plumb the depths of it. Real news means something happened Again, that's not something we're used to trying to figure out what is news these days, but the idea, in actuality, real news means something happened, and because it happened, things must be different now. That's what makes it news. The world is now different because something took place. And so there is this deep abiding joy that Luke uh, wants to get across here. He wants us to have, he wants us to get from the news of the Christmas story, if you think and ponder it deeply in your heart. You must take it in, and you must take notice, though, of the places, the people, the surroundings, um, the reactions that are taking place upon Christmas, the first Christmas, And I would say to you, and I would submit to you, and you have to notice it, and Luke is a brilliant writer. He's writing, according to himself, he says, I'm writing an orderly account of things. He's very methodical in what he's doing, and he's doing this really beautiful, subtle, contrasting work in his account of the birth of Jesus. Luke never uses the word, but this whole story that you just read of the coming of Jesus is a story of kingship. Um, although he doesn't say it. Luke is announcing the birth of, of a king, a cosmic king, a king with power and authority that the world has never seen. And I love the way he does that. I love the the way he brings it about. He draws you in, and you have to sit, think, and ponder what, what is happening here. There are two truths that ring out in the context clues, and I would say the contrast clues to to what Luke offers the way he tells the story and the way he reports the news the, the the two things are this the king this king has a hidden sovereignty this Jesus this Jesus as king has a hidden sovereignty this king has a humble entrance and those are the two striking things that you get in this passage that we read what do i mean by hidden sovereignty Well, Luke begins uh, with what seems like a trivial set of circumstances leading up to the birth of Jesus. How many times, I would imagine, you guys have read uh, Luke 2, and you you, you get to that first line, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and we move on, because we don't think, that doesn't have any business being in the nativity that I set up on my buffet (laughs) at my house. Um, What's going on, Luke? Luke? because Luke is not haphazard, or there's nothing about his writing that's arbitrary. He's taking careful consideration of everything he's including. So you have to just ask, why is that there? Well, in part, he's just telling you Jesus is not fiction. Jesus is history. It happened, it touched down in a real place in a real time. Luke doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus, and he doesn't begin it like this, once upon a time in a land far, far away. That's the stuff of fairy tales. This is not a fairy tale. G- Jesus is historical. That's better. It's far better than any fiction. This was and is as real as it gets, and it took place in a real time in history. And, but that's not all L- Luke is doing. He's doing this really beautiful, clever, contrasting work. He's, he's contrasting two different kinds of power, authority, and control. You see what I'm saying? He's juxtaposing Jesus' entrance into this world in the midst of the backdrop of Caesar. Augustus in the time of Jesus arrival Jesus, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man on earth at least from a little bit of historical work that I've done he ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD Caesar Augustus he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar Augustus took Rome from a Republic to an Empire he was a really really impressive guy he won decisive battles He was incredibly good at war, he was incredibly savvy in politics, his most famous uh, uh, defeat was the Battle of Actium where he defeats Mark Antony, you can read about that. He controlled more territory than the size of the United States. He commanded people in the millions and millions. This was a serious juggernaut of power and leadership. It's not all. Augustus claimed that his adopted father was divine. He attributed that because of a comet soaring over through the sky, and he said, there's my dad. <laughs> he must be a god, which I think, spit a bit conjecture on my end, but I think it was in part because Augustus was very clever, and he knew what that would mean for him. And that would mean that he, by default, was also had divine status. And it it is very well recorded that he was known to be the political savior, quote, political savior of Rome. Um, Upon his death, he was actually called son of God upon his death by the people of Rome. Now, Luke does not want you to miss the irony of that, which is why he includes it in the story. Caesar has all the earthly power, one can quite imagine, to demand a census for the entire world. Is it really the entire world? Well, in, within their purview, yes, it is the entire world, the world that they knew about. This kind of earthly demand puts Joseph and Mary, of course, in a, in a, in a bit of a, a bind, a bit of a pickle here. They're, they're living in Nazareth, uh, but jo- Joseph must register his family in Bethlehem, which was the place of his family lineage, as Luke tells us. Bethlehem, though, and again the text tells us this, And we can know this if we go back to the Old Testament. But Bethlehem is the city of David. It's the birthplace of David, the famous king of Israel. This this detail Luke includes is deliberate. Uh, Once again, he's showing us here uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And that's been coming out repeatedly in Luke's account. Starting at the very beginning, he wants to show you nothing about Jesus coming here is haphazard. It's all about fulfillment of promises that stretch back centuries. In 2 Samuel 7, you can read how um, God promised David that from his offspring, he would establish a forever kingdom. That's when he made the promise way back then. So Mary doesn't know it yet, but she's about to deliver in Bethlehem. There's no reason, actually, according to scholars, that she has to go. But the the reality is is that she's probably so close to giving birth, Joseph's like, you got to come because I'm not missing the birth. So she tags along. And none of that is arbitrary when you see its connection to God and what this baby represents. God sees to it that his son will be delivered in Bethlehem, the city of David, fulfilling all the promises. Now, here's my point. Luke is showing you that in the backdrop of Caesar's incredible power and authority, God is not somehow passive, inactive, unable to accomplish his mission. God is not doing the bidding of Caesar. It's the other way around. People at the time just don't see it that way. You see, Luke is pinning almost sarcastically, and I I like to speculate that Luke is being sarcastic. He's sarcastically pinning a vision for what Christmas should mean to you. God is always acting with ultimate authority, even when it's completely hidden. Let me say it again God is always acting with complete authority and power, even when it seems hidden from your sight and my sight. He uses the material He has, the people that are in place right now in your life, the places. He uses the leaders, good or bad, and what they do, to bring about and accomplish His mission and His promises. In real time, if you can, and this won't be hard for you as a human being, recognize the humanity of Joseph and Mary and what this meant for them. Mary is pregnant, very far along in that pregnancy, and now she must travel by foot. You can uh, see kind of an image of how far, because maybe you're not really up to date on uh, your geography over there, and that's okay. Uh, But here it is, Nazareth to Bethlehem is no small journey. It's roughly a four-day hike for them that she must travel. Imagine the inconvenience. Now, if I said here, a raise of hands of whom, how many people in this room are pregnant, please don't do it. I don't want to know. It would be all of you. But... Um, but there are many, what I'm trying to get at is there are many of you that know, as, as time goes on throughout a pregnancy, the least thing, the last thing you want to do <laughs> is go hiking for four days, okay? Um, you know, does she ride a, I mean, you know, how do they get there? Listen, they're not getting there in a Tesla, right? <laughs> this is how far they have to go. I can only imagine the level of discomfort the inconvenience, the grumbling that probably was taking place in Joseph and Mary. It was not something that they would have picked. When you're about to deliver your firstborn son, this is her first child. You know, I mean, some of you, you're like on your fourth or fifth or sixth, and you're like, you're out there up to the due date playing tennis. You know what I mean? Because you're like, whatever, I get it. But your firstborn, no, 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 no. You know what I mean? The nesting runs deep. You know what I mean? And you can imagine what she's thinking and wanting to do and all the things that are swirling in her her head. The last thing she wants to do is travel by foot or donkey 70 miles. 70 miles. To a town, nonetheless, that's going to be crowded because of this census. And as you'll see, they'll have to compromise on where to stay because it's so crowded. So what I'm saying is what I'm sure felt like a terrible setback for them is actually... God moving in the hidden details of it. Now, here's how that should impact us, right? If you haven't already connected all these dots. Christmas should remind us that God's power and authority is operating within our lives, even when it seems absolutely unknown to us. Even when it seems like things are just standing still. Just yesterday, I popped up to the office up above to grab some things and I took time to uh, stand and look out. I usually do things like that to, to take a moment to pray, um, take in the view. And, and as I did so yesterday afternoon, I, I couldn't help but notice, um, and this is a regular occurrence up there, um, but, and it was a windy day, which it's always windy up there. I mean, it's just always whipping through. And there were birds of prey hovering over the field just up here. And as I looked at them, it was, what was so striking about it is is it was as if these birds were literally suspended in the air. No flap of the wing, no movement to them, just completely like someone painted them in the sky. Now obviously, we're logical people, we know how birds fly, (laughs) right? And the wind is coming through, the wind is gusting through, can I see it? no sight of it, but it's there, it's moving. It's suspending that bird. There's an active agent at play. We just can't, we don't have the eyes necessarily to see it. And as I looked at that, as I thought about this story, as I thought about Christmas, as I thought about how God moves in our lives, As I thought thought about how so often we get frustrated, rightfully so, at our circumstances, our setbacks, our trivial frustrations that we must go through when we wonder, where are you, God? And we just can't see. Is that our fault? I don't think so. Not all the time. But that doesn't mean that he's not there. I mention this whole bird thing because it's an image of what life is like under God's rule very often. The setbacks, the trivial surroundings are never haphazard or or arbitrary. It's all material that God is using to fulfill where he wants you to go. It's how he wants to shape you even. Even in the midst of terrible boredom, very often when your life seems like it's standing still and you're frustrated by how still it seems, maybe things are terribly difficult. What I submit to you, is a Chris- Christmas is a reminder that God is not absent. He's not. He's not somehow bored with you, taken up with more interesting things in the Middle East or something like that. He's very much involved. You know, we have sayings like the devil's in the details. What I would ask you to do is reframe that. God is in the details of your life, every bit of it. There's not a detail untouched by him. We just don't always have the eyes or the ability to notice yet how it makes sense. And what this invites you to do is learn how to wait. Learn how to long to get more information. See more of God in it. Learn to be patient. Learn to trust him even when it's difficult. That's what this story should remind us of. The claim of Christmas should soothe our restless spirits into a kind of deep abiding trust. Don't give up on God even though what seems like in your life like he's absent. He has not given up on you. You might need to wait, but you can wait with trust. That's what the Christmas story in part wants to remind you of. And, and trust you should, should be able to do if you get what's happening here. He's worthy of your trust even when you're waiting in a ton of silence and a ton of inactivity or a ton of difficulty. He is worthy of your trust, particularly the more you see the humility of his character. That's the second thing that Luke is careful to put into the telling of Christmas. He wants us to see this humble entrance, the contrast of that against, again, the backdrop of Caesar's and the Herod's of the world. Joseph and Mary are are in Bethlehem, and the time comes. See, we, we see this, Jesus must be delivered, which alone is staggering and crazy to think about. The one who existed before the foundation of the world, the one who stands in the very presence of God, is not only stooping down into this earth and taking on flesh as a baby, but he does so with so little comfort and so little fanfare. Verse seven says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, strips of linen, to keep his little limbs straight, I'm sure. And she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. We assume a lot about uh, the birth of Jesus. We assume a lot about the Christmas story because of things we were raised around or because of the little nativity scenes that we had in our homes growing up that were strange. Like I remember there was a nativity scene um, that I used to secretly go off and play with, you know, that my mom would set up. And there were camels in that nativity scene, which now I look at Luke and I go, he doesn't mention any camels. We assume a lot about the nativity. We assume a lot about the story. We assume a lot of things that aren't necessarily there. Seldom do we actually ponder over the actual details that Luke gives us. Luke never mentions a stable. He never mentions cute, cuddly farm animals either. We just assume that they were there. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there weren't animals present. I'm just saying we assume so much into the, the story that actually isn't really told to us. What Luke does mention is the Savior of the world comes to us as a baby. He must be breastfed. That is strange. He must be swaddled because he's probably crying. And he is laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough made out of either wood or stone. Not some lavish crib feathered in purple linen fitting for a king. They're likely having to stay in an adjacent room to someone's living quarters um, or the bottom floor of a small house. And what they're likely in is a situation where they're in a space that was reserved specifically for animals to be brought in at night out of the cold or away from predators. The idea that they're off into some little barn doesn't really do any justice here to the story. This was by no means their preferred choice, but this is what the circumstances demanded. The town was crowded, in more comfortable settings have already been taken. Joseph and Mary are caring for the Savior of the world at this moment, at his arrival, with little to no connections or money. Jesus wasn't born in the dirt, to be clear. But, from the context that we get, it is clear that Jesus is born in poverty. And that's, again, astonishing. So you have this king coming to us in poverty. But at least you'll have this king born with hype, won't you? But when we look at the story, we're meant to wonder, well, where is the hype? There are angels, but there's no earthly fanfare. Where are the dignitaries, if this is a king? Where is the pomp? Why isn't there a royal gathering of all the important people in that day who want to take part in this unbelievable moment? To be clear... God does want an audience. We see that. He he does want participants. He does want the message to get out. But notice who who he includes, right? Verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We maybe you don't, but people in ministry sometimes do this. They have this habit of painting shepherds in the biblical context as the underbelly of society. First century Jews did not see them that way. They were seen in a positive light. But what is true is they are no doubt the ordinary Joes of the world. They are the blue collar of the world. They They took on a dirty, dangerous, but important job of watching over livestock. And once again, the subtle connections to past unexpected kings is taking part here. Luke is careful to to allude to that. Unexpected kings come this kind of way. If you remember, if you're familiar with David, most famous king of Israel, his story, if you remember how that takes place, Samuel goes as God instructs to go anoint this new king, and he goes through all of Jesse's sons, the bigger sons, (laughs) the ones that look like they could really be a king, and none of them are fitting. It's David who he anoints. And do you remember where David was? Out in the field, being a shepherd. And so here you have Luke, again, pointing to this kind of unexpected king. And it's also pointing to the fact that God just doesn't see or use people the way we see people or Use people. It is in that passage. That's First Samuel 16, if you want to reference it, which you can go there and read. And it's, it's there that God instructs Samuel, don't look at people the way people look at people. God does not look upon appearance. He looks upon the heart. And it's a reminder, and Jesus is the ultimate reminder of this pattern of God. It's fascinating to think that heaven is coming down in this moment. God became present among us. An angel stooped into this world to sing about the arrival. But from what Luke wants us to see, God doesn't need, he doesn't need the important people of our world to be there or even to know about it for that matter. Heaven comes to earth and there's no palace and there's no earthly fame or glory in it. Jesus leaves the heavenly presence of God. He steps into our mess with complete vulnerability by becoming a baby. And he does all of this as a cosmic act of humble love on a scale that no one has ever imagined, and he does all of it, all of that amazing, profound work in relative obscurity. If you were going to enact the most amazing, courageous act of love, would you choose to do it in obscurity? No you would broadcast it on Instagram. But not God. It's crazy enough that Jesus sheds his glory and enters poverty out of sheer love for his broken creation, but to do so with such humble fanfare should cause us to pause with under utter astonishment. What does that say about God? And what does that say about how he wants you to know him and follow him? Uh, the scholar Daryl Bach aptly says, "The agent of God lives without pretense." This is both comforting and challenging to me. Christmas doesn't just speak to the character of God, although it does. It speaks to the pattern of how He operates over and over again in this world. God consistently goes out to the margins of this world. We see this over and over and over again in all the stories of the scriptures. He likes to move in the ordinary places and in the ordinary people. He doesn't flex his power or his significance the way we would. Christmas is the news that Jesus subverts the Caesars of the world. Do you see that? That's the the contrast that he's making here. He doesn't go to the palaces. He goes to the blue collar. He goes to the poor. He goes to the left out. He goes to the ones that we think can't contribute a lot. God is not in need, nor is he impressed by our worldly significance or our our, our worldly, or our earthly talents. He uses them, sure. He doesn't need them, nor is he overly impressed by them. The humble entrance of Jesus is the announcement to the world what was already said in Isaiah 55, 8-9. This is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. Christmas is the announcement that God does not do things the way that you would do things. What does this mean for you? Or what should it mean for you? That he chooses to come this humble to us. Well, J.I. Packer said it better than me, so I'll just read his words. the Son of God to empty himself And become poor meant a laying aside of his glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. And finally, a death that involved such agony, spiritually even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men. It is our shame I, 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 I love the opportunity for, to let somebody smarter than me get up in our face, other than me. Here's what he says. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians, go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing on by the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit, but it is the spirit of some Christians, alas, there are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on as best as they can. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. You see, what I'm trying to get at here is that the claim of Christmas should challenge, and just receive it, it should challenge our snobbery. It should challenge our pretense. It should challenge our need to make much of ourselves, especially at the expense of other people. God went to Mary and Joseph. God went to the shepherds. I mean, to be clear, the angel says that Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. But the reality is and the pattern in the history shows that it's the people in the margins of life that so often are the ones that notice him and find it so good. It's the shepherds, not the Caesars and Herods that won in on this birth and all that it means for this world. Therefore, as you prepare for Christmas, remember not just that God's not just that he has a hidden activity in your life, but God's humble attention to the margins the people that exist in the margins. And he invites us into that same kind of pattern. This should comfort us when we feel overlooked, and it should shape our ambitions. Uh, Friday night, I had this dinner where we met with like the elders and the elders' spouses and the staff and, 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 and their spouses, and we all got together, and it was just a time that we're getting together to Create belonging, a sense of trust, a sense of community, a sense of being known by each other and understanding each other, inspiring hope, and like I said, fellowship. It's a fellowship dinner, as we call it. And I lay ground rules for gatherings. I'm learning that good rules are good for good gatherings, Um, because the truth of it is we don't always do what is good for ourselves and other people, particularly in social gatherings. And there's there's something you'll notice, and I um, challenge you to. Take notice of this, particularly this Christmas as you gather with people. There's just something that we do as people. We do this unwittingly, we don't know it. but we show up to gatherings, and we naturally we have a sense of unease. Anyone? Am I the only one? Thank you, Bush. So me and Bush are the only insecure people in the room.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: OK, the rest of you are liars. Um, so we show up to gatherings and. Underneath, whether we know it or not, what's operating very often is a sense of unease, a sense of insecurity, a sense of not measuring up, a sense of inadequacy. Will I be liked? Will I be listened to? Will I be noticed? Will I be seen? Will I make the impression that I want? These are the things that are operating underneath the hood, whether you know it. One of the, the unfortunate realities that we do is um, to re- relieve that sense of tension, that sense of unease, is what we we um, We exalt ourselves but we have this really clever way of doing it. What we do is we speak about people that are not there. It's scapegoating. See, um, there's a pattern in humanity, and that is that scapegoating, putting guilt, shame, fear on something else and sending it out relieves tension in any space. I think God knew that all along. This is, of course, what God invites us into in the gospel, is this idea that when we put guilt, fear, and shame and these things on Jesus and send him out and let him bear it, it should relieve tension in us and it should create deeper fellowship. And anytime it's not, we're missing it. And see, so what we naturally do, unfortunately, when we're not careful and we're not attentive to what we're doing, is we create community by people that we don't like, So we talk about other people that we don't like. And we join forces and say, yes, all of us. Whether we know it or not, what we're saying is, yes, you and I agree. We don't like this person, which we think by doing this will make us feel better by exalting ourselves in that fashion. Sorry, I never mentioned to you the rule of the gathering. (laughs) The rule of the gathering, if you haven't guessed, was you are not permitted to speak about anyone who is not here in a negative light. And there was a consequence to that rule. The consequence was you had to give 10 push-ups in front of everyone, if you did. <laughs> no, one, no one violated the rule. Uh, not that the staffer and elders would do that. But we all are prone to do this. This is how we make ourselves feel better. This is how we think we can find joy, is by exalting ourselves. Because underneath, we don't feel like we're enough. And what the Christmas story reminds us is that we don't need to do that. And besides, it doesn't work anyway. When we exalt ourselves at the expense of other people by overlooking them, ignoring them, speaking bad about them, the truth of it is when we do that, particularly in the form of gossip with other people, what we actually are doing is we're creating a deeper anxiety because we know, gosh, when I'm not around, they scapegoat me. They put that stuff on me when I'm not present. And so it just fuels our more and more anxiety and insecurity. And so we're learning to be ambitious in a different way. See, Christmas, Christmas, the Christmas story doesn't squash worldly ambition. It just reforms it into a humble, heavenly approach. We of all people... We of all people who say we believe in the incarnation and what it means for the world means that we should be attentive to the insignificant things and the insignificant places around us and people, for that matter. This also means we shouldn't be too overly proud of our accolades. You don't need to keep talking about your accomplishments. Please, you don't. You have everything you need in this story not in the story on the little placard on your wall. You don't need to continue. If the Christmas story gets in you, you don't need to constantly put that out in front for everyone to notice and see. And you don't need to be so overly defeated when you're criticized. Your mistakes, your missteps are not your whole story. Jesus is his entrance into this world. And we shouldn't be focused on only who seems important in this world or who might get us ahead because we know them. The joy of Christmas, at least in part, is the announcement that, the one that one's importance, your importance, my importance, one's importance is not a matter of one's environment or the supposed status that things bring to you. Rather, importance is a function of one's role in God's work. That's what makes you important. So the question is this, as we, as we wrap up, do you long to see this? Like, do, do, you, do you long to get this into your bones? To not just recognize the shocking vulnerability of God coming down, but what it means for you and how it should change you. Do you long to have this Savior deeper into your heart? Not just that, but deeper into your heart to your ways of living. I mean, the way you get there, I think, is like Mary. Luke says she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, I, I think to some degree this means that Mary didn't grasp it all the way. She, she, she knew she was part of a cosmic story of love that changes everything forever. But, but the things on that kind of a scale are not quickly understood or quickly applied. It takes time. It's a slow process of mistakes, study, prayer, practice, and we keep after it. But have you at least started the journey? I do not assume that every single one of you is a Christian. I do not make that assumption. Nor do I assume that every single one of you has the, the true Christmas story operating right now as you prepare over these next few weeks. I don't assume. Let's not be presumptuous. Have you at least started this journey? Are you on the fence with the faith? Are you on the fence with Jesus? If your heart is open to this kind of story, fantastic, stay open. Keep asking questions. Begin a life of prayer. Begin a life of actually reading intently in the Gospels. Are you open not only to his hidden sovereignty, but his humble entrance and what that means for you? I hope, I hope this Christmas, you will start that journey if you haven't already. And if you have, and you're here this morning, and, 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 and you've been on that journey for a long time, I. I I, stay, you, I, I hope that you stay encouraged and that you hold on and that you wait and you continue to, 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 to press into the longings that you feel and, 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 and the ways that you don't always see how he's working and operating in your life, but you wait and you wait attentively because you trust him, because his character has shown that he's good on his word. And so I invite us into that, wherever you're at into that space, whether you're, you, you need to begin a journey with Jesus or you've been on your journey with Jesus for a long time. But I invite you to that this morning in communion. The last night that Jesus spent with his friends before he was taken and crucified, after eating dinner, he had, took this bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's a gift to you. And he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he gave us this. This is a practice, a way, this is a symbol, a way for us to remember and keep proclaiming these truths, this idea that this is one who came for us. The, the Christmas story is not the story of good advice. It's the story of news. Something took place, and we at, most, stand back, take it in, and let the news of it, the reality of it, shape us. And that's my uh, invitation for you this morning, to simply take time to let this sink in. Because I don't know all the the ways in which this needs to shape you, this particular Christmas season, but I know that there are ways that we all need to be shaped. And so if you're a Christian, you're invited to come to this station or this station, come in gratitude, come in humility, taking a piece of the bread dipping it in the wine or the juice in which we celebrate Jesus on our behalf. Father, I thank you this morning for the time that we've had, and I thank you for the story, the opportunity to be able to read the story and reflect on the story, and most importantly, Father, we want to stand amazed and astonished that you would come for us, and not just that you would come for us, but you would come for, for us in this particular way. Shedding all of your fame and all of your glory Shedding all of the heavenly hosts Singing and praising your name To step in and stoop into this mess I cannot believe that you would do that It is a struggle for me to believe that you would do it So help me and help others in our unbelief Because your word says that you've done it And that you're at the right hand right now That Jesus is at your right hand interceding on our behalf. And so this Christmas, may we have a growing and abiding joy, no matter the losses we've experienced, no matter the confusions that we sit in right now, because we know that you have your eye on us, that you're working in the details of our lives, that you have a plan, and that plan is for redemption. May we trust in that this morning as we take part in this meal It's in Jesus' name that we always pray, amen.